Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike King, your host, and this episode we chat with Craig Penrice as he talks about flying the RAF Lightning, the F-15 Eagle on his US Air Force Exchange, and testing the Typhoon. He also includes his two ejection stories, the first being on the English Electric Lightning, and the second on the Hawker Hunter. If you like what we do here over at Aircrew Interview, and would like to support us and help us grow, you can head over to our Patreon channel at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, where you can donate monthly. We have different tiers ranging from $1 per month right up to 25 with each tier offering different rewards. All the monthly donations greatly help us to continue creating these video and audio interviews, so please take a look and I thank you in advance. Enjoy. Okay, so Craig, when did you first become interested in aviation? When I was a schoolboy. Um, growing up in Glasgow, my mum and dad's house was right under the approach path to Glasgow Airport. So seeing Viscounts, Vanguards, uh, the early jets coming in and out, uh, always kindled an interest in aviation, civil aviation at that time. Mm-hmm. But that's where it all started. So can you talk us through when you joined the RAF and what some of the aircraft you were you trained on? Yeah, I, um, I say I had this, a bent for civil aviation, but the first oil crisis meant that there were no places to be had anywhere. So kind of against the grain I, I applied to join the Air Force and eventually was accepted um, during my time at university I flew on the Bulldog T1 uh, I got a, a lot of flying and a very poor degree out of that um, over 200 hours of flying in four years at university uh, then off to officer training at Cranwell and the Jet Provost Mark V uh, introducing to that a, a year or so doing that and then across the valley on the Hawk which was still pretty new in those days it was um, uh, replacing the Hunter's uh, at that time, uh, Hawkett Valley, then Hawkett Chivener, and having won the best bombing student prize, I was sent to the Lightning Air Defence Aeroplane. <laughs> Makes sense, obviously. Yeah. So obviously, we're going to talk about the Lightning now, uh, an amazing aircraft. So, did you choose this initially? Would you, would you wanted to go that route, even though you were good at bombing? Um, my my sort of iconic aeroplane had always been the Buccaneer. Okay. Um, variously, um, going fishing with my dad in the Scottish Lake, seeing Royal Navy Buccaneers at ridiculously low heights over the lake had, had, had hooked me um, but the, the course you go through the instructors there decide on your best abilities and your best uh, platform to be sent to mm-hmm. also matching the needs of the Air Force so it, it was the lightning for me and um, I could not have been happier as it turned out in the, in the long run Brilliant. So can you talk us through some of your initial training on the Lightning? Was How different was it coming from these, you know, like the Jet Provost? Um, it, it was hugely different. Uh, the Lightning, um, because it had a radar, there was nothing in the training fleet that equips you or gives you a, an insight into what working with a radar is like. The mental gymnastics required uh, to calculate the crossing angles and the closure rates, heights and elevations and all those things... That is a completely new set of tricks. Flying training prepares you for takeoff, landing, fighting. But the radar was a completely black art. Yeah, we have to talk about its amazing performance. Can you remember your first reheat takeoff? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the uh, obviously there's three different marks of lightning: the, the single seat Mark III, the two seat Mark V, and the single seat Mark VI. The um, obviously you start in the two seater, squashed in side by side with your instructor. And, and first trip is a reheat takeoff, just to, you know, I guess, put you in your place, recognise <laughs> how far behind the aeroplane you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but then it quickly becomes just natural. You're, it's it's quite, quite amazing how quickly you get used to certain things, yeah. even though they are um, a, a big step forward in terms mm-hmm. of you know, the physical feelings, the accelerations, yeah. etc. But it just becomes, that's what you do. That's your job, yeah. yeah. So can you talk us through some of the handling characteristics and also how did it do in DACT of the types of the time? Uh, the the aeroplane um, was a lovely aeroplane to fly, um, but it was never designed to be a, a sort of agile fighter. It was there to be an interceptor, get off the ground quickly, get up high, get up fast and, and meet the incoming bomber force. I, I guess I joined the fleet quite late on and we had a lot of restrictions in terms of the amount of G we were allowed to pull because the airframes were getting old. Um, cockpit was quite difficult to see out of. Um, so DACT was, was hard work. Um, on your own, it was very hard work. As a pair, you could work well together uh, and, and hold your own. But you know, it, there's, no, there's no doubting when I was on the Lightning Fleet, it was coming towards the end of its days and there were far better radars out there. There were far better performing airplanes out there. Uh, we had a work cut out. Because you went from as a 82 to 87, would you say it was a capable platform to do its job at that time? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the primary job that we were doing was the, you know, the quick reaction alert, the air defence of the southern half of the UK. We took our turns doing that. And, and yeah, you could you can get the jet going incredibly quickly, be off the ground you know, in you know, three minutes from getting to the, the, the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there was various times where we intercepted you know, a Learjet that was depressurised with an unconscious crew, um, lots of you know, lost private pilots, lots of variety in that. And you know, when you're woken up at four o'clock in the morning on a snowy winter's night and the snowplow has cleared one little strip down the runway, that, that gets your attention when you're you know, hurtling down in your 20 tonnes of aluminium. Imagine, yeah. Yeah. We also had a bit of an incident in the Lightning. Could you tell us about this? Uh, yeah, you can say it was an incident. Other people would say it was <laughs> a, an, an accident. Um, yeah, flying along quite happily, uh, making a, the last turn towards home as we were always short of fuel. I moved the control column to bank to the left and the control column kept on moving. And the aeroplane did as it was told, so very quickly went into a, a nose-low spiral dive, speed picking up very quickly. I couldn't move the stick. I tried a few switches to isolate hydraulics and things, but that didn't help. Uh, and then there was literally no no thought process. It was, if that's happening, I have to eject. Uh, I pulled the handle, and my next memory after that is sitting in the helicopter that had rescued me about an hour and a half later. Really? Uh, so I've been bobbing around in the North Sea, uh, severely broken uh, right elbow and broken left knee from purely the speed that I left the aeroplane at, over 500 miles an hour. Uh, but the, the most threatening thing was hypothermia. I was really, really cold. Um, uh, and that was the thing that was likely to kill me. The broken bones weren't, but I was luckily picked up by the helicopter, taken back to Binbrook where we were based, and then later that night onto the RAF hospital at Ely, where I spent uh, quite a while when they put pins and plates and put me back together again. Um, I remember hearing the doctors over here say, well, you'll be lucky to walk again, you'll never fly again. I said, no, I'll, I'll show you, I'll show you. <laughs> and you certainly did. I did, I did. It took a while, but I did. Uh, certainly a, uh, an eventful uh, thing in the lightning to happen, but a few of our viewers have seen the boots nailed to the plaque. Could you tell us about this? Yeah, the, the boots comes from uh, the officer's mess bar at RAF Binbrook. Um, anybody who survived an ejection when they came back would, would have their boots and, and be you know, hoisted up to the ceiling, nail your boots on there, and undoubtedly drink lots of beer and buy lots of beer for everybody else. And then, uh, sadly, when Binbrook was shut down, um, what did we do with that piece of aviation history? Mm-hmm. And um, 
There was a local pub, the Blacksmith's Arms, uh, that we often used to frequent. We often used to get locked in there. Uh, and the, the brilliant idea was, why don't we relocate the boots? So we, we gathered all the, the rightful owners, or most of the owners, not all were still around, and uh, took the boots down, marched them across, and plonked them on the wall to the Blacksmith's Arms. I'm not sure if they're still there, to be honest. Worth uh, having a look, maybe. Oh, well, yeah, go, go back one day. So, did you, overall, did you enjoy your time in the Lightning? I did. I mean, it's a, it's a first operational platform for a young pilot. So much to teach you about airmanship, looking after yourself as a single-seat pilot, yeah. looking after your fuel, because you were always short of fuel in an aeroplane that was you know, a, a, an engineering nightmare. Things often didn't work as they were meant to. Yeah. So, a great maturing platform. It set you up well. Uh, for uh, future airmanship in the Air Force. Then uh, something special happened to you. You got uh, on an exchange to America flying the F-15. How did this even come about? Um, well, there's, there's a bit of a three-year gap in there. So I went to be an instructor on the Hawk yes. first. So that sort of qualifies you to be a bit of multi-role and, and, and instructional uh, background. A lot of the exchange positions uh, required the instructor category to go and do it yep. um, and it's the thing you, every year you have your appraisals and you say what would you like to do next and I always said I'd like to do an exchange tour please and there's only a set number of them you can kind of manipulate yourself into the right right ballpark and I was lucky enough to get to fly the F-15 uh, air defence variant the A&B model uh, in Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida as an instructor mm-hmm. so on a training squadron there yeah so you were an instructor, but I, I was a bit confused. Why do the US Air Force need uh, an instructor from another country that hasn't flown there on the type before? Variety is the spice of life, I think. You say. Right. It's, 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 the interchange of thinking uh, and uh, procedures and methods, it's always good to have a different viewpoint on things. And the exchange programme uh, is much lower now than it was, in, but there was, there was something like 45 RAF pilots on exchange posts in, in the US, and there was equal number of US guys in states and Australia and Canada Holland there's a whole range of it just to have that intermingling amongst NATO nations to, to have that um, understanding so a guy who's done an exchange job comes back into his home air force and understands why they're doing it that way because mm-hmm. we're not all the same <laughs> yeah. so what were your first initial thoughts on the F-15 and what was the training like so, wow this um, huge the roomy cockpit that you were sitting on top of you could see out of coming from the lightning before that where you were hemmed in there um, you know it was the, the, the cockpit was ergonomically laid out there was plenty of space and it had a radar that was just amazing compared to my lightning radar I could see mid-twenties miles this thing was seeing 40 miles plus uh, and, and it just made life very different it was a challenge uh, going to learn to fly the aeroplane and then immediately becoming an instructor on it mm-hmm. uh, without the sort of um, operational uh, squadron experience mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, the aeroplane uh, completely awesome mm-hmm. and what model was this was this the A and the B at the time it was the A and B when I first arrived but during my time there the squadron transitioned to uh, C's and D's mm-hmm. uh, and various different software upgrades in, in, in the uh, intervening periods as well but so flown all four Mm-hmm. of the air defence models so can you tell us about your first flight how did it feel you know sitting in the back of like another amazing aircraft sitting in the front not the back oh you, wow. you, you, you get to sit in the front as you're going through your convex and um, yeah the, it's, it's, the whole thing is summed up by you know, two nations separated by a common language 
the, the, the getting used to American way, American Air Force way of doing things. You go, what does he mean? Oh, no, yeah, okay, right. But, yeah, flying in Florida in an an airplane, you know, that was the the, the top of the league at the time, Mm -hmm. um, and and been given that privilege representing the Royal Air Force in a way, and representing the UK in other ways, um, a great honour and privilege. Mm -hmm. So, did you ever get to do a vertical climb like the Lightning in the F-15? Yes, we we did. Not not as often as we did it in in the Lightning, and... um, uh, is it vertical? It was nearly vertical. Nearly, yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, I can't remember what the name of it. There's a special name, sort of code word that said, "This is. You know, we're not going to tell everybody what we're going to do, but we're going to do." A, ah, right. Um, what was it? Uh, anyway, where where you were away from home um, and not being frowned upon by the senior officers, you could you could enjoy it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the F-15s handling characteristics. How did how, how did it compare to the Lightning, for instance? Um, it, there's a generally speaking, it was an absolutely um, perfect aeroplane to fly. I mean, digital flight controls, uh, you know, force sensor as opposed to um, moving the stick around. It was very well coordinated. There were certain aspects. If you had um, sort of slightly asymmetric fuel and you were a little bit aggressive, it, it could bite you and it would flick a little bit. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, it was um, it, it was very predictable mm-hmm. which is always good you know um, an, an airplane you pull 9g in mm-hmm. um, massive wing great uh, performance uh, but yeah there's no real vices in the airplane mm-hmm. uh, for the majority of it so how did it do in the uh, dsct assuming you did it against the types of the timing in america yeah when it, part of the instructor working was to go in things like red flag uh, green flag so we did did get to participate in those exercises um, and the, the strength of the Eagle comes in, in its working as a team. When you've got a four-ship of Eagles with their radars all coordinated, you're pretty much invincible. Yeah. You, you, you know what's happening out there. Um, as long as you, you know, understood the picture that you were seeing and, and reacted the way you knew you should, then you were, you were king of the castle. Yeah. So was the cockpit well laid out, would you say? And did it, the air differ right up to the sea? Um, there was very little difference between the A, B, C, and D in terms of what you were looking at. Um, so analog gauges, um, you know, a, a radar screen in there, a head-up display. It was still a fairly basic aeroplane by modern standards, but yeah, well laid out. Unlike the Lightning, which was a, a bucket of switches thrown in, and wherever they landed, that was it. This was you know, you, things were in sensible places. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your role as an instructor. So what would be like an average day of flying, and what would you be doing? Um, you know, the day before the schedule would go up um, the, the squadron typically flew two waves a day um, the sorties were probably an hour and a half or so in length so you, you would it, you would be very unusual to fly in both waves mm-hmm. um, sometimes it was a three wave day and you fly first and last um, the, 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 the approach that they had in the school was a very disciplined you will always start briefing two hours before takeoff you will always stop briefing an hour before takeoff uh, you, you'll cover lots of stuff whereas the RAF way is a lot more well I'll brief you because I know what you need mm-hmm. not because we've got the regulation that says we've got to brief all these things yeah. um, uh, you know, get your uh, G suit on pick up your life jacket and your helmet and get in the bus and be driven out to the, the flight line never cross the red line on the concrete I mean, you've got to go in through the hole in, even though it's there crew chief very smart salute uh, very proud of his aeroplane hand it over to you um, 
a lot of the sorties were, were flown with uh, me flying in a single-seat airplane and the student flying in another single-seat okay, airplane. Right. So there's very few uh, backseat instructional sorties. Things like the first night flying, the first tanking sortie, first gunnery sortie were all two-seat ones, but um, uh, generally you were flying in a single-seat airplane, which always makes it nicer. Yeah. And it must be nice having that extra fuel coming from the Lightning. <laughs> oh, yeah, my word. Um, luxury in terms of you know, almost going transcontinental America yeah. on one tank of fuel. It was, mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty nice. Yeah. So let's talk about how you, uh, how you fitted over there. Like, did you fit in well with the Americans? Did you get any uh, jip? You suddenly find yourself being um, the font of all knowledge about the history of your country and the politics of your country, which <laughs> I don't think I really was. But no, the, the guys are incredibly um, uh, accommodating, not accommodating, appreciative of, of different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, in any squadron, you get on better with some than you do with others, and you've got some very good and long-lasting friends come from the exchange tour there. Yeah. And what squadron were you actually based with? It was the, uh, the Boneheads, the 95th started off as Tactical Fighter Training Squadron but it changed its name three times and then it was the 95th Fighter Squadron by the time I left. So lots of different badges. Wow, yeah. And obviously you probably have many but could you tell us some memorable stories you have to our viewers? Um, Aeroplane ones or on the ground ones? Uh, Aeroplane ones. Um, so interesting one with a student at night. We'd, we'd been off doing intercepts. We'd been to a tanker and I was leading him back to base and sort of, he's rejoining on me in, in the dark and you can see the lights coming alongside and he gets about 100 yards behind me and then suddenly the, the blue and the green light change sides oh. you go uh oh and then he starts plummeting down he just got completely disorientated with the, with the, the, uh, the horizon and the starlight and you calmly say roll not any direction just roll the airplane stop right pull and got him back up there there's a little bit of a uh, heart stopping moment um, but um, you know, it was it was pretty Pretty uh, drama-free, I think. There was nothing... It's probably what you want. It's, it's what you want, really. You've got to be careful with students. Mm-hmm. So how often would you fly over there? Probably three, four times a week. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's just quite good. I, I mean, I, in my three years there, I got a little over 500 hours. My buddy who went to the Marine Corps flew F-18s, got 1,000 hours at oh. the same time. So different approach to flying hours and, and generations on them. But 500 quality flying hours. Yeah. So how long did you spend over there, and did you enjoy it? Uh, uh, just short of three years we were across there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Living on the beach in Florida. Uh, you know, in, in the few days when the secret no foreign flag got raised, I would say, thank you very much, I'm off and get my boat out, mm-hmm. cold beer, <laughs> and sit and watch the sunset and the dolphins swimming in the bay. So <laughs> it had its compensations. What was the most difficult aircraft to go up against in the F-15? Um... F-16, I think, was always, always a challenge. It's uh, small, quite hard to see visually if you, when you get into that stage. Um, you know, the, the later, the big mouth F-16s had a pretty, pretty good performance themselves. Uh, and, you know, it, it was never a clear-cut who's going to win. You, you, you had to do the right thing, uh, and he, or he had to make a mistake to make it a, a clear-cut win either way. Mm-hmm. But F-16 was, was tricky. There was, there was always hundreds of them as well, it seemed like. <laughs> So how did the flight gear different, uh, differentiate uh, compared to the UK? Um, I always felt a little bit insecure in American flight gear. The helmet in particular felt pretty fragile and flimsy compared to our helmets. Uh, obviously, it's a torso harness rather than strapping into the seat. So it's a bit cumbersome getting that on, but it meant strapping in was quicker. Um, 
G suit's pretty much the, the same, really. So after this, you went back to Valley, and then could you explain what happened after this? Yeah, I, I, after the F-15, I, I obviously I had wanted a tornado a billet of some description, but there were none available, so they, they wanted to use my instructional background and uh, put me towards uh, Valley to do that. Um, out of the blue, a telephone call from an old friend saying, um, did you know we're looking for people to become test pilots who've got single-seat and high-tech air defence experience? Well, that sounds like me. Um, would you like to come and have a chat about it? And I bundled on down to Boscombe Down, uh, what started off as a you know, crew room chat turned very quickly into quite a detailed aerodynamics interview, which I hadn't prepared for and wasn't really <laughs> expecting. Uh, after which I was asked to leave the room for a little while, and then two minutes later said, "Yeah, we want you to be a test pilot." Wow! Really? <laughs> well, not that clever. Quite um, and then um, I thought, "Well, I'll be in Boston down in, in, in six months' time." They said, "No, no, you're going to America. I've just come back from there." No, no, you're going to America. Why? Oh, they've got better airplanes for... So I was you know, destined at that point to be a typhoon, RAF typhoon test pilot. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't do the course and find out where you're going. You, you are put through the course to go somewhere specific. Right, OK. So can you tell us some of the aircraft you, train, uh, you tested over in the USA? We're trained on, uh, yeah, testing, I suppose. Yeah, so the, the, the core airplanes were the T-38 and the T-2. Uh, F-18 was part of the school fleet. Uh, lovely, the, the beaver and the otter, tail, big ah, trail yes. dragger things, they, they, they open your eyes to make you use your feet again. <laughs> um, there's a couple of helicopters, a couple of gliders in there. Um, got to fly the uh, Tomcat as, as the end of course exercise, wow. a big, big deal. You get 10 hours, go and fly this and, pr- and produce the big report. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's great fun, 10 hours, but there's a lot of writing comes after that. Uh, that, that, was, that was awesome. Um, Flew the F-16 during that time. Uh, pit special. Got to taxi a B-52. Didn't, didn't get it off the ground. Something went wrong. We couldn't fly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, a good um, spectrum. I think thirty odd different types in the year. Oh, P-51 Mustang was the the, the mid-course carrot to keep you going. Yeah. Um, that was just lovely. That's lovely. Amazing. So would uh, each aircraft uh, be tested in a different way, or would it be the same syllabus for each aircraft? On the, on the course, um, it's, it's very compartmentalised. You, you start off learning all the things about aircraft performance. Right. Then you go on to handling qualities, and then you go on to testing systems. Um, and it, typically, you would be taught how to test in one type, and then be given another type to go and test it yourself and produce a report on it. So if you, you, know, you could be taught... Um, lateral directional handling qualities in the T2 but then be given a, a project to go and produce data from a different aeroplane yeah and that's how you sort of put into practice what you've been taught right and was that a lot different from your military flying uh, no no it's, it, it's not but the, the, the key thing about becoming a test pilot is that you're you're testing a product mm-hmm. whether it's a, a new weapon a new aeroplane a, a new display for it to be used by the guys on the front line and you only know what that is because of the experience you have so it's, it's relating what you're testing to how it's going to be used because the scientists and the engineers build stuff and they go oh, that would be great whereas the users often, often don't use it the way it was yeah. the engineers built it or thought they so being that interface between the end user and the designer builder was, was what the, the key skills to learn as a test pilot are so you were essentially working for the frontline guys, is that what you were kind of doing? 
Yeah, as, as an, an RAF test pilot, my, my end user is, is the frontline guys. When I then left and joined industry, I'm obviously protecting the shareholders, <laughs> but also looking after the guys on the front line because they're still my, my buddies. Of course. This could be a difficult one or an easy one. What was your favourite aircraft you tested over there? Tomcat. Tomcat. And what was that like to fly compared to what you've uh, flown previously? Uh, well, it was, um, you know, it was eye-watering in terms of you know, how, how big it is. Um, we had the, the, the big engine um, B+. One, so the, the, its, its performance was even more than the Eagle in, in that terms. Its, its avionics weren't that great, yeah. but later models swapped that. Um, but I think because it had some interesting um, handling qual- qualities that you go, oh, that caught you out. The, the typical you know, Top Gun flat spin heading out to sea yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, that happens. That's real. Yeah. Uh, you know, big engines way wide apart. Asymmetric thrust was a, was a, was an issue. So you no, know, it was a. Um, not quite the docile aeroplane the F-15 is in handling quality, mm-hmm. but there was lots of interesting things to experience. Yeah, so, yeah, how long did you spend over there, and could you tell us where you went after this? It, it's, uh, the course is a year long, so I think I've probably spent 14 months by the time you get you know, house and things sorted out, and, and come straight back from that into Boscombe Down, into the fast jet test squadron at Boscombe Down, uh, where initially you get checked out on all the the tornado, the hawk, the hunter, anything else that's there, but um, start to become embedded in the typhoon program, mm-hmm. and that takes a while because it's, it's it was a big complex program. So, ground school on the airplane, simulators on the airplane, get up to Wharton, get embedded within the industry side of things, but keep that distance between industry and um, customer. Yeah, uh, and I think it was probably about uh, eighteen months, maybe fifteen months after getting back to Boscombe that I finally got. To fly a typhoon, but you're also doing other bits of testing on other projects. So, so tell us about what it was like to fly the typhoon in that first flight. Oh, first flight was. Oh, I mean, at the time there was only seven typhoons in in the world, and we were flying uh, the Italian prototype, single seat Italian prototype that had, when I got airborne, it had 15 hours on the clock. <laughs> uh, flying, you know, single seat airplane that there are no proper simulators for. They're just rigs. There's not, oh, not, okay. a, not a certified thing. Uh, you, you're kind of self-taught. Uh, you've got a big team from the military. We were looking at the, the latest standard of engine that was in the airplane, so it was all engine performance testing. Uh, and you were there as the test pilot just to make sure you put the airplane to the exact conditions that the boffin on the ground says, mm-hmm. we need to test the engine here, there, and there. Uh, and you also don't want to mess up because you're, you're, you've got something that's kind of unique. Uh, there's a lot of people watching you. But that's what the course prepares you for. Don't leave any stone unturned. Make mm-hmm. sure you prepare properly. So the early days, was it mainly engine testing, like you said there, rather than the avionics side? That, that was a specific uh, exercise called a preview. So right. the customer got to do four previews over the development program. first one was handling quality. The second one was performance when the engine was more mature. And then later ones went there. That was a standalone thing that the military did. I also got to fly on anything as a military guy embedded at Wharton with the company okay. and then of course eventually I left the Air Force and jumped ship mm-hmm. we did all weapons avionics mm-hmm. radar all that testing so obviously the Typhoon was probably the most modern aircraft you, you've flown how did that like handle in the air? Oh, amazing you just yeah the the uh, the, the flight controls and the effort that got into refining the flight controls from this unstable aeroplane that just 
breathe on the stick and it did what you wanted it wow. to do. You, you just felt exactly that it was going to do what you were thinking before you got there. And, and performance-wise too, it, it's you know I've flown the 14, the 15, the 16, and the 18, and yeah, they're, they're all of a of a same performance. That you'd have to get a force gauge and a stopwatch to to measure it yeah. to find out which one is actually the best. Typhoon, you, you just feel feel it in your backside. <laughs> the, 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 it was a quantum leap in in, in performance. Mm-hmm. Never had any problems with them. Even the development engines were were great. Mm-hmm. And, and the the stories now of, of engines spending over a thousand hours in the airframe before they're yeah. out for overhaul. So amazing. And and the the, the reheat light up time um, was just staggering. You got power in instantly. It looks almost instant from the videos oh, I've yeah. seen. And and it's. You know, the acceleration is is about um, a third of what you get on an aircraft catapult shot. Oh. You know, just in a clean jet, in, in mm-hmm. decent conditions. But it's, it's you're pinned in the seat. So when you came to the Typhoon, you must have thought this was a quantum leap forward, uh, you know, aircraft at the time. Y- yes. Um, the, the, a lot of work had gone into the to design requirements, you know, uh, analysing the competition and analysing the threats. Uh, understanding what the performance of the airplane needed to be to beat those threats on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you know, the Sukhoi 27 was the, was the threat and how that was going to evolve, which mm-hmm. you know, history has shown that it did evolve in a way. But the airplane was you know, on paper set out to be able to defeat that on a, on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. So you know, it had all the right things, the, the, the performance, the handling qualities, the uh, you know, turning circle, G, mm-hmm. weapons, radar, all... All the bits were there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a very complex program. Yeah. So was it just designed as an air-to-air fighter at that time, or was it always designed to integrate into the air-to-ground role? It's, it's always at the very... The, you know, the first specification said it's a primarily air-to-air, mm-hmm. but with a secondary air-to-ground capability. Mm-hmm. So it was never, um, never ignored. It was always there. Um, I don't think anybody really imagined it would come on to be as much of a multi-role... Uh, platform as it, as it is today. So how many hours did you get on Typhoon and overall did you enjoy uh, testing it? Um, I didn't get that many I was probably 250-300 thereabouts over the, over the time because you know, it's a development programme the aeroplanes weren't flying that much mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I ended up as the lead project pilot on the, on the programme and the responsibilities that comes with that uh, but, but it's very much part of a big team of people mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of go through test pilot school thinking that you're going to be the one in charge of everything, but you're not. You're just the driver yeah. who happens to be you know, in the in the spotlight mm-hmm. uh, and the one who can get it wrong if you mess up. Yeah. Um, which was, yeah, only did that once. But yeah. <laughs> so, Craig, overall, did you enjoy your RAF career? Absolutely. And I never uh, never thought as a schoolboy I would join the military, but I couldn't have um, had a, a better career in there. And the thought of the alternative of being a BOAC um, co-pilot or British Airways uh, no that, that didn't appeal doesn't, still doesn't appeal to me um, great people um, the, the working ethos the, the teamwork just um, lovely great you, you certainly flew out a lot of types so you're a very lucky man I am a lucky man so Craig you had a pretty big accident in the Hunter can you tell us about this I can, yeah. Um, 1st of June 2003. Um, we've been flying Hunter um, for many years on and off at air displays and things. Uh, this weekend in question, we'd flown at the Port Rush Air Show in Northern Ireland out of Blackpool. 
uh, quite close to Wharton, so it was quite quite handy, really. We'd flown on the Friday, the Saturday, and then on the Sunday, the, the day of the, the accident. Um, kind of a, a long litany of, of problems. And the, 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 you talk about the Swiss cheese effect or breaking the chain. And there's a number of issues that go into why the aeroplane eventually crashed and, and our involvement in it. Um, aeroplane had electrical problems, um, but... It's got a battery. It's got second generators. That's okay. We can we can live with the one generator not working. Uh, but at some point during the sortie, this, that second generator failed. Not a problem. We still got the battery. That'll keep us going. I kind of predicted that that would happen, and, and, and the weather was fine. We could get back home to St Athens uh, to um, Exeter. Sorry. Um, but midway through the, the the transit back home, there's a little shudder through the airframe, which. The hunter quite often did. It was the inlet guide vanes moving, uh, and then I noticed the speed was slowly, slowly uh, reducing. So I moved the throttle forward a little bit. Speed kept on reducing. Moved the throttle forward a little bit more, and it did take me about a minute and a half to 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 recognise the fact that the engine had actually gone out. It stopped working. I thought that in a single engine jet, when the engine stopped, it would all go deathly quiet. But the engine's still windmilling, the air, the air conditioning's still working, this, the noise didn't really change. And, and all that's happening is the speed's getting slower. And I, oh no, um, this isn't going to end well. Um, you very quickly put all the pieces together and recognise that this aeroplane is, is, is not going to start again. Uh, so can I, get to a, can I get to a runway? Can I glide it into a runway? And, and Lambeda Airfield was just potentially in sight. Um, but because I had underwing tanks on that I didn't want to jettison and not know where they're going to go, I kept them, which meant I couldn't get to Lambeda. So the next uh, option was to put myself into the, 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 the Duffy Estuary, or even better, get to Cardigan Bay. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that this aeroplane didn't end up in housing estate or anything yeah. like that. I, you know, long before the showroom tragedy, I was didn't want the headline of... You know, weekend jet boy you know it just with the, I seriously was thinking that so I stayed with the airplane uh, as we're gliding down uh, and at a, quite late on about 2,000 feet uh, I initiated the ejection um, you know that's that civilian Craig Penrose flying had I been still in the Air Force I would have been quite within my rights to leave the airplane at 9,000 feet and let it go to its own devices I wanted to make sure I knew where it was going to land just about um, <laughs> pulled the handle and um in complete contrast to my previous ejection where I got no memory of anything this time round I can see this cockpit disappearing away from me as I leave it at what 100 feet per second probably something like that I don't know I can't work out what the g-forces are but you bang out of the airplane I watch the airplane fly away underneath me then it pitches up because I'm no longer in it uh, the last vision of it is in the vertical before it nosed over and came back down I know right away that I've damaged myself my back is agony absolutely excruciating agony is parachute comes open and you're flopping around and um, watching the water come up because I want to be over the, the estuary was fine and I thought the, the, the water's coming up pretty quickly here <laughs> this is not a lot faster than I was expecting and I glanced down and the ejection seat hadn't separated from me as it should do automatically so I'm coming down in a tiny little parachute anyway with a 300-pound ejection seat strapped to my back. Uh, so at a very late stage, I unstrapped from that. It, it fell to the, uh, the floor and landed maybe 50 feet away from where I landed. 
Uh, I landed in the water, the parachute pulled me a little bit, but it collapsed. I sort of you know, came to a stop, but the, um, I you know, took a big breath as I hit the water and, and didn't float back to the surface. I couldn't figure out what was wrong because the water was only about nine inches deep. So I'd hit the, the, the water and then the, the sand underneath it with a broken back from the ejection, which Crikey. wasn't a, a great feeling. In, it's in that famous picture in the news of their, the co- their back tail. Yeah, but well, the, the airplane crack. just literally went well, um, straight into a peat bog. So the cockpit ended up sort of 30 feet underground. Mm-hmm. Um, it was recovered and the, my little overnight bag was recovered. And um, we'll put the car keys in it, which was the important bit. <laughs> so was, you know, in the water, luckily the tide was going out at that stage. Um, I could hear you know, police sirens and things on the banks of the estuary. About 45 minutes later, there was a, a passerby walking his dog. Uh, I could see him. I was obviously lying on my back. I couldn't move. I knew my back was badly damaged. Uh, he, he's sort of approaching, wondering whether he's coming up to a body or not, so I've waved. And he comes across. There's nothing he can do on his own. Um, got some water. And then the, the sky can, becomes filled with helicopters. There's a, the, the Valley Rescue Helicopter, the Chivener Rescue Helicopter, yeah. and the North Wales Police are all there big yellow helicopter a man comes down on a string and sort of takes control uh, and, and you know at, at that point up until that point it's all self-preservation when the professional services are on the scene you go huh. <laughs> uh, and you know onto backboard and taken to uh, the nearest medical facility which is part of the story that um, is important because had I been a military pilot who dejected they're, they're told take him to the spinal centre at Nottingham mm-hmm. if you're a civilian no matter if you've ejected from an aeroplane take the, the, the casualty to the nearest medical facility Aberystwyth District Hospital as fine a place as it was is no place for a broken back right so I was then taken to Swansea overnight in an ambulance on the road with a broken back spent five days there before being transferred to Nottingham and it was a week later before they put the nuts and bolts in to fix my back Wow, so you really were travelling about here. Uh, oh, yeah. Bloody yeah. hell. Emergency stopping an ambulance with a broken back is not a nice thing. I can imagine. So did you know this was going to be the end of your flying career at this point? No, it took a while um, for the full enormity of the yeah. damage I'd done. So the, the broken you know, disc, a broken um, vertebrae are one thing. There's also a heap of, because of the splinters, spinal cord damage, which you know, has long-lasting effects in there. Uh, and... You know, that I was given this sort of ultimatum once your back is uh, fixed again which you will do you take the metal out and you can, you can fly again mm-hmm. but as it took them 12 hours to put it in from the front by the way um, <laughs> and it's going to take them equally long to get out and I was at 44 <laughs> years old at the time having done everything I'd done I thought you know what I don't need to be doing this yeah. because nothing says that the next flight's not going to end up the same way exactly yeah so two ejections in four and a half thousand hours is way above average yeah, but it's great to see that you're here and okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've been incredibly unlucky, but incredibly lucky, uh, thanks to Martin Baker, thanks to you know, the rescue squadrons, thanks to the doctors, and thanks to all the support I've had. So I'm very lucky to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So, Craig, do you have any hobbies? Uh, there's not a lot of time for hobbies at the moment. No, we, we, um, my wife and I adopted three kids three years ago, so oh, wow. um, quite young ones, so that keeps us pretty busy. But I, I do love getting to my shed and doing a bit of woodwork, turning a perfectly good bit of wood into sawdust and stuff like that. <laughs> um, used to say golf. 
<coughs> Excuse me. Do you have a favourite tipple? Uh, being a Scotsman, the, the old uh, wee dram <laughs> of, of an evening. The favourite aircraft you've flown? I, I, because of the professional involvement in it, I think it has to be the Typhoon. Yeah, brilliant. You know, being you know, pivotal in a lot of the things that happened, I, I feel very proud of, of that. Yeah. But, yeah. And there's not many, but one you wish you could have flown that you haven't. Um, I very nearly got to fly in the flanker. I oh. wish I'd, I'd, I'd just, got, just got thwarted at the last minute. What was that a brief overview of that story? What happened um, there? It was th- thanks to the, the Hunter flying. We were at the Waddington Air Show and I took uh, the flanker test pilot flying in Hunter. Oh, right. Just, you know, not, not fishing to get anything in return just because he was interested and we, 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 we could do that. Then he came back and said, I, OK, I take you in my airplane. Oh, great. Thank you very much. But then it was, you know, it, his enthusiasm was switched off by authorities. And, <laughs> But no, I, I flew the I flew the, the MiG twenty nine in, in Germany. Oh, wow. Flew those ones, but um, interesting airplanes. So, which had the better climb rate, Typhoon F fifteen or Lightning? Would you say? Uh, oh, time t- climb rate. Oh, Typhoon by far. Really, I was yeah. going to say Lightning. Then, nope. No, no, Typhoon by far. Mm-hmm. So, what do you get up to these days? Um, I, I work as an aerospace consultant. Um, uh, it, it, anybody who needs some guidance or help in, in the fl- mainly in the flight testing uh, world uh, a lot of that work comes from China China's got a huge blossoming aerospace industry uh, and not a great depth of knowledge in, in history of it so they, they're desperate for any assistance we can do and, and they've got some interesting projects and um, you know, it's, it's busy I'm cracking on close to 60 it's time to start slowing down I think <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Craig, thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you very much.